Welcome back to my channel. I hope you're all having a good afternoon. We're coming live from lockdown in London. It's 3.30 and it's already getting dark here. So um, summer is well and truly gone. We're almost into winter. And we have today a couple of amazing entrepreneurs coming on the podcast. My first guest, Daryl, uh, is a podcast host himself. An entrepreneur, he's going to tell us all about his podcast, Seven Figure Entrepreneur. He's going to tell us what he's up to, what his interpretation of entrepreneurship is. He's going to share knowledge with you. You can ask questions, and I'll be keeping an eye on the comments sections and all the different channels that we're streaming on right now. So you can ask questions, and we will try to help you. In addition, if you um, know anyone that should be listening to this podcast, you know our mission to help one million people start a business of their own. We've been at this since February. We've helped about 60 people so far, so we've got a long way to go, but we're doing it together as a community with your contribution and your insights. Many people that have come on this podcast have had help from you. So I always thought that it was initially going to be me helping entrepreneurs, but it turns out that it's you guys that are actually making the biggest contribution to helping people right now. There's a lot of people out there right now struggling with their businesses either to turn them into businesses that can survive or just survive based on this new world we find ourselves in. Later today, I'll have quite an inspirational entrepreneur coming on around 4 p.m., Andrea from Poma Brush. He'll be talking about how he came up with his idea, what his idea is all about, and how we can help him. So please stick around and have a listen to that inspirational entrepreneur story, and then let's together see if we can't help him be successful. So I think without further ado, I will bring Daryl on. I'll just mention one other thing before I do. We, uh, we interviewed Jeff Lynn. He's the founder of Cedars. Uh, he tells his story about how they've helped over 1,000 companies raise funding, including brands like Revolut. They've helped them raise the money to make sure that they're successful. I'm a big fan of Cedars. They're about to merge with Crowdcube. They will be the largest crowdfunding platform in the world. So I'm pretty proud they're UK born and they're there helping entrepreneurs with funding. So I have no vested interest in either of those businesses. Uh, I, I promote them because I believe in them. I personally invested in 68 businesses. So if I ever bring anyone on the podcast that I've actually invested in, I will always highlight it. But Cedars and Crowdcube have been doing amazing things to help founders get the money they need to grow their businesses. And we need them. Sadly, banks are having trouble helping young entrepreneurs with ideas, so new inventive pro products like Cedars and, and Crowdcube are, are filling that gap. So I, I guess I should mention Kickstarter, Indiegogo, just to balance it out, there's also some brilliant equity crowdfunding uh, platforms out there. So you guys need to raise money. Um, you can go listen to Jeff. He'll share with, his, with you his story about how he raised money and how by creating Cedars, he solved his own problem and built this incredible business. I think they've raised over two billion pounds, much more than uh, dollars for my US listeners, um, uh, two billion pounds to help startups. And I, I think they deserve a lot of praise. So please go listen to the founder, Jeff, on my podcast. And you can catch all episodes, of course, on Spotify, on Apple Music, and all the places you're listening to this broadcast on right now. So let me bring Daryl on. Very excited to hear Daryl's story. Hey, Daryl, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm really good. I'm, I'm honored to have you here. Thank you so much. To have a, another podcast host come on to your show is always a great honor. So uh, hopefully I won't let you interview me and I'll be able to actually interview you. 
I know what it's like when you're an interviewer, you always want to ask questions. But first up, maybe just tell the audience a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Um, so my name's, um, well, my name's Daryl, but more commonly I'm known as Sully, Sully Breaks, um, as, a, as a writer slash poet and creative. Um, I, start, I grew up in London. I grew up in London. My family's originally from Ghana. But most of my, um, ident although I spent time in Ghana when I was younger, most of my identity has been shaped by my time in London, particularly North London, um, Wood Green. And um, growing up, I was very much like, I was into sports, which was basketball. But at the same time, I was very much steered towards an educational um, path by my parents. You know, coming from an African household, it was like education was like the foundation of a lot of their beliefs. So I went to university in Sheffield to study um, law. So it was during my undergraduate law that I um, discovered my passion for writing, you know, poetry and performing it on stages. Um, so graduating, that kind of took over most of my, um, my time and ambition, you know, so I did start to pursue that. It was around the time when um, social media was still emerging, like particularly YouTube. So I use YouTube as a platform. And I really found a home in, on YouTube and that started to grow itself. Um, and after a few years of working on that platform, I had some very big viral successes and, and that kind of spun me into a completely different world in terms of understanding, um, in terms of my brand, my profile, my audience, but also in terms of um, understanding business. So I've always seen myself as a creative who who's, who's manages themselves creatively and, you know, assets and monetization, all that stuff. But now I was in a space where I was able to meet people who had startups, particularly in the tech industry. Um, and some of them were into venture capital, some of them were just investors. And that I started to um, be positioned around some of their companies, you know, just to see where I could offer advice, offer support. And that became a role which I played for different kind of founders or different companies, just from a creative and communication standpoint as to like, you know, with artists and, and, and creates, it's always about marketing and how do you reach an audience and branding and creating assets or maybe just thinking about it from a different way, you know, being a black man from London, also like having that creative background, there was a lot of diverse thought that I could bring towards the businesses they were building. And, you know, that some of the businesses have gone on to have a lot of success. Some of them are still in the process of building and even more successful, but, as that time has gone on, not only have I developed like my own ventures of my my brand, but also ventures across seas. You know, I've partnered with other people, but then at the same time, I'm still learning about startup and investing and trying to lend my expertise wherever I can. And the podcast is kind of an extension of that, where I interview people with a seven figure business and ask how they built it, and try and relay that information to the audience, while at the same time still working create, creatively, you know, creating content, writing, and, 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 and just really performing all over the world. Well, I love your story. I, um, I'm actually married to a creative, and, and um, we, we built a creative agency together. And the reason we actually initially got into business together was because she was a creative and she hated the commercial side. So listening mm. to you, I feel like it's quite unusual to have someone that's creative, but also, you know, loves the commercial side. So many artists, Kind of hate the whole concept of chatting about money, right? They just want to do their art. So it's it's an interesting balance, isn't it, between the two worlds? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I have I have a dual duality to my personality. Because some days I'm like, leave me alone and let me go in my cave and write. But then other days it's like, okay, how are we going to turn this into a product? 
you know, how are we going to get it to an audience? Even down to how are we going to sell tickets? I hated the fact that not being in control of the commercial element of my business meant that at times I let, I lost control, creative control, because I couldn't, um, that, that I had to defer to other people, you know, who could tell me this is the best way to monetize it. We can only do this. Or even when it came to handling like production budget and all those kind of different elements, I really wanted to be able to, um, to hone that. And for me, business is very much about creativity in the same way. And I think I've been very fortunate to be able to leverage those different sides of, of, of my thought process. Do you think things like YouTube have, have allowed artists to, to monetize? I mean, you, you have millions of hits in some of your videos. I mean, first of all, I had a few questions come in from TikTok prior. People were asking, you know, how much money do you make from a two million plus hit video? You don't feel you have to say. But equally, you know, it, do you think it's, it's, it's flattened the landscape a bit and given creatives a bit more control over, over revenue, for example? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say I feel like, and obviously YouTube have done a great job at supporting creatives. They've leveled the playing field. But in terms of like uh, monetization, I, I definitely think it's created an opportunity. I, I think what's happened is a lot of creatives have settled into that opportunity rather than be like, how do I expand on it? So for when I was really using YouTube CPMs, it was like 2 million views at the time was just a little over like 2,000 pounds, you know what I mean? But it's all down to the CPM. The CPM is how much, uh, I can't even remember the actual um, abbreviation means, but it's like click, it, it clicks to do with impressions. And sometimes you have a, a higher CPM depending on the kind of content you make. So for instance, if you make content about finance and wealth, you'd be getting more money per click than you would that if you made something which is a bit more um less niche and more and more competitive on the platform so at the time so so on average i normally base it out like as a thousand pound per per million hits do, do you kind of get what i'm saying but it also like youtube has expanded to the point where it depends on duration as well so i know a guy mm -hmm. uh, i was watching a video about a guy who had um he had a 30 second video which got 50 million hits but he only made like maybe like five grand off it or something because it's about how long and how many ads can they place on that video and what kind of ads, the quality of ads. So yeah, I definitely think it's created an opportunity for creatives to be self-sufficient and actually earn revenue of the content they're making along with other platforms, you know, that are developing, that develop that same kind of, um, um, what's the word, module. Well, one of the platforms we're live on now is, is TikTok. I've had a video recently that got over a million views on it. And you know, I, I basically I got 12 pounds for that. You know, like it's really ridiculously small amount of money. But I think what's interesting is not the money you get from the video, but the effect afterwards. So I've had a cascade of connections come through to our project because of that video. So they become marketing tools, not just potential revenue tools. I'm sure you felt the same. And that's how I feel. That's what I meant. A lot of artists have settled into the idea that I'm just going to make ad revenue, especially young people. They feel like ad revenue because especially when you come from, um, a situation where you've never been paid for your art ad revenue sometimes seems to suffice for a lot of people but like you said it's not that much of an amount but what it does is it creates so much um equity and positioning for your brand that you don't reap the the value exponentially you know what i mean those videos that i made years ago i'm still getting paid not of ad revenue but i'm still getting opportunities of the back of those videos just because of the reach that they had hmm. I think there's a war coming between the platforms as well. Like, um, I mean, I, I'm part of the creator fund on TikTok. And, you know, I, I feel quite happy with the fact they're trying to pay me to do content I'd probably do for free because I like it. So it's kind of interesting they're trying to pay you to produce content. 
But you can see now Snapchat just a few days ago um, thrown in that they'll give a million pounds away a day to creators uh, to come on their platform and kind of compete with TikTok. So th there's definitely a war brewing, isn't there, between all the platforms? I think it's always been. I think it's always been. I think I think YouTube was an early pioneer in creating that kind of create uh, user channels. And ever since then, the module has proved so successful for companies that are trying to acquire content you know, you know, well, not necessarily even acquire it for trying to generate content that it, it's kind of like a no brainer that everyone is going to try and see who can, who can, who can rise to the top of the mountain, you know, because there is so much talent out there willing to make, like you said, stuff for free, but um, no one is supporting them. But yeah. And YouTube have announced, I've done so much stuff with YouTube. They've announced so many initiatives and given me so many opportunities. We did a massive campaign where we was on the billboards and on the buses in London, you know, and that's off the back of them just supporting the creators and trying to, to, to enhance our reach so we can then monetize further. There's a few questions floating around, but you know, do you think there's a special formula to create a video that goes viral? Is there anything you think tip-wise there, or is it really just about your personal approach to it all? Oh, there's definitely a formula. I, I, I just think it changes every generation and every platform. So when I went viral, like, years ago, I, I was a YouTube, like, um, scholar, like I would study YouTube, I'd check the algorithm, I'd see how it works. So I, I definitely think there is a strategy to go viral, but I think a lot of people always think about going viral, but I'm not concerned on the aftermath or what the results is going to yield of them going viral because there's different types of virality, and I think a lot of people don't know that. You know, they think just because everyone knows you, you've made it. You know, sometimes everyone knows the content, but they don't know you. You know what I mean? And sometimes everyone knows you but you're not selling there's nothing to monetize or they don't mm -hmm. see how it's monetized so i think um there definitely is a formula I'm, I'm i'm a bit removed from what the formula is because you know i'm, I'm more focused in different areas but 100 percent, i mean it's, it's out there if you study it enough yeah i um i think you're absolutely right around studying the platforms as well i think a lot of people want to get rich quick uh, and they, they don't understand that you know there's a there is a process and then and there is effort so I, I had one, I had one video on TikTok uh, that um, had eleven thousand comments, and wow. I had personally I got three people working for me on this podcast show, but that I had to personally go do those replies because there were very intimate questions that only I would know the answer to, right? So wow. I had to reply to each and every one of those comments, and literally it took me two days to do it. And even then, I missed some people because the TikTok comments are very complicated, and so people get upset and you don't reply to them after you've replied to them, right? So. So it's fascinating, though. I mean, the effort required to, um, you know, and you can't really hire people to do it for you. Uh, you. You do, I think, social media. My thing, my top tip for people is you probably have to take care personally to really, you know, get to grips with it. When you outsource it, it can be a little less personal, and and users feel it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think social media one of the it's one of the hardest business um, um, parts or business endeavors, just because, like you said. People get invested in you as a person and as a brand. They're not just, there's, there's so many processes that you can't just outsource, you know? Because like you said, if someone messages you, people, there's no formula for how you speak, you know? And if it's inconsistent with what you said in the video, people will know that. So I don't think people understand how demanding it is, especially when you have to come on the camera every time and deliver, you know? And sometimes people think that it's just a one-off. You just hold the camera up and you say the right thing all the time. No, sometimes like one video is a product of like, 10 15 takes you know especially mm. when it's a short video on tiktok so um yeah it's, it's, there's a lot you have to do by yourself to make it work 
I was reading about some of the things you've done, and maybe I misunderstood this, but it looked like you said you work with NASA, for example. How, how, yeah. how did project come about? Oh, it's cool, man. So um, I, I was contributing towards a project where a friend of mine, Ayao, a digital artist in Israel, um, he's an amazing artist, like makes 3D sculptures, and he just works his art digitally. And he was um, asked to make um, the first piece of art in space, like a sculpture. And we was, we was kind of like, at the time, like I said, with a group of friends, we were kind of brainstorming and contributing around the idea of what it should be. And um, I ultimately came, he he's a crazy guy. He was kind of like, it should be, um, it's a bit explicit. So I don't know, it's, it's, I don't know how many young people are listening. So, but it was a more kind of- I think people won't mind. Okay. He, he wanted it to be the sound of an orgasm, you know what I mean? Go into space and have like the sound of maybe a female orgasm and then, I was kind of like, no, um, it, it should be like a laughter, you know, that's the most like, cause, and he was like, he wanted Mandela's voice, but Mandela died. And so we went through it, like, so, so I was like, oh, it should be like a, a, a laughter. And we kind of discussed around the idea and it turned into a bigger project where they source people's laugh from around the world. And the most popular laugh became a 3D sculpture and it was launched into um, into space. Amazing. So that, yeah. That, that, that that I mean, just just getting to do projects like that is uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, regardless of whether or not you make money. So, sometimes that's something people overlook, isn't it? Just the fun process of creating these things. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think in in the ideal world, if money wasn't a factor, some of these things you'd do so much more of them. You know, just because like I can tell that to my son, you know, or that's something that is is it has a testament somewhere. You know, there's a, there's a document of that somewhere online. I don't mind that. You know, that's that, that's a great opportunity. And, just, and it's, it's life is about fulfilling, you know, having fulfilling moments. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I did a comic book business that was a massive, massive flop. Uh, it was meant to be a movie and it all fell apart. But I still love the product. I still love the story. The, the basic story was, uh, imagine if, if Superman landed in China or if Batman was born in India. You know, kind of taking these stories which you think are so American and what... It's interesting when you ask people, what, what if, um, you know, what if Superman was born in China and instantly people are like, oh, would he be evil? You know, it's yeah, quite an interesting cultural education um, piece to it that, uh, that I like the whole idea. So we're going to compete with DC and Marvel. Um, oh, but they've got one like that. They've got, um, they did, have you watched The Boys? I'm a big comic fan anyway. Like, I'm big into comics. And they had a comic, Superman comic called The Red Sun, where he, like, I think he lands in, like, the Soviet Union or something like that. And that okay. was, like, that was, and then the boys has kind of got that whole kind of spin on how like superheroes came and were more human basically and how they'd exploit their powers. I'm surprised that didn't work out. Well, we, we focused on one uh, superhero character initially uh, from a story called the Mahabharata, which is a famous Indian story. Basically gods lived on the earth 6,000 years ago and they had, and it was all one continent. So there was another interesting cultural uh, reference where we were all one continent, but the gods had children with humans and to the half gods, half half uh, human, and then some do good things even though uh, they're bad, and some bad characters do good things even though they're bad, and and that's what we actually launched with. The big problem was that we got Harvey Weinstein involved in it, to be honest. Around that, but um, but anyway, no, enough about me. What what about the entrepreneurial journey? We talked a little bit off camera. I was quite interested. So, so do you think you're always an entrepreneur? Or do you think you, you grew into it? How did you become an entrepreneur? How did it, a lot of my audience want to become entrepreneurs, you see. So what, what, what was the process for you? Cool. Let me just turn on the light and try and get a bit more light just because we've lost some. Um, yeah, I think 
I've always had an entrepreneurial kind of like element to my creativity because I felt like if I couldn't monetize it the way I wanted to, I'd lose creative control. And for me, creative control is like the essence of what I do. You know, having the money to do what you want and how you want to do it empowers you. I've done so many brand deals and so many like um, sponsored things that it was like, I see the difference between when you can fund yourself, when you can monetize yourself, and when you can just rely on your audience to to, to feed your art. It's, it's a lot more authentic and it's less pressure, you know. It's less pressure to say, you have to say this word at this time. You have to say that. Um, oh, by the way, we don't like the fact that you said this word that. Could you, I mean, I did, I did I'm did. i from London and I speak a certain way and I did one, one campaign and there was like, do you mind pronouncing the T's at the end? And it was like, it, it completely kind of like, um, restricts you as to what you can do. So for me, it was always like an entrepreneurial element to art. And also that's what I admired about art. It was an opportunity for me to leverage my position in society, get out of my environment and create opportunities for others. So for me, entrepreneurship was always an element of who I was because I wanted to empower myself and the others around me. Do you, do you think just uh, jumping back to like the, the kind of YouTube hits that you've had, just my own personal uh, question, really. You know, I find that once I've done a, a video that's gone viral, that you kind of get addicted to it. And there's almost like a high and low that when you post a video and it doesn't go viral, you're chasing it. Did, did you have that experience for your career? Oh, most definitely. I mean, I was like, I, I spent like the first three years of my YouTube career trying to go viral, you know what I mean? So then when one went viral, it was like, okay, this one's gone viral next one gone viral and then the rest of the journey became what is popular how do we chase the virality but i had a conversation with a great friend of mine he's got a strong youtube, YouTube platform now actually um london real do you know london real by any chance yes of it's course a, yeah so i had a conversation with brian i've known brian for years and he he built he built his channel very slowly very steadily and he said to me there's there's the difference between having a wide audience and having a deep audience. At the time, London Real didn't have a lot of followers. And he said, I focus on digging deeper into my audience. Well, from a monetization purpose, if I can get a, a thousand pounds of 300 people, which is um, awesome, it's like 30,000, sorry. So wrong mistake. He said, if I get a thousand pounds of 30 people at an event, I make, I make 30K. I need 30 million views or whatever on YouTube to make that. Do you know what I'm saying? So he was like, I'd rather focus on the 30 people and deliver them as the best value I can rather than chasing this wild. So that really shifted my perspective because what I realized is the more I tried to go viral, the more I was stretching myself thin. And I have another friend who has a great formula. She, she makes a bunch of content and then she'll try and make one very big viral one. But, but when, when that one goes viral, she does have, that does, does, she has a bunch of content that supports the virality, meaning that she's creating invested followers. Because one thing about virality is 12 million views doesn't mean 12 followers. So 12 million followers, sorry. So what I found is chasing the virality is very addictive, but it's better to, to pick your moments when you want to go viral. And if it yeah. works, it doesn't work. But if it doesn't, it's just business as usual, you know? Yeah. I think this is such an important point uh, for, for my listeners to pick up on, because a lot, a lot of the questions we get in on our platform is about you know, how, how do I how do I market my business? And, and what you're saying is something I repeat again and again, which is it's, it's better to have free customers that then love you so much they promote you than millions of unhappy customers. Yep. You know, I, think, I think the depth, the depth there, I mean, I, I even feel it on my personal content again. You know, I don't mind if I have only, you know, 
a, a, a few thousand people watching the video. If, if it helps 50 people in a deep and meaningful way, then, then that's totally correct. I don't want it going to to people that don't find the content useful or, or frankly become trolls. You know, like there's, there's no value in that. And so going deep with, with content, I think it's the future. I think this firewall thing's a bit overplayed. And then you have this kind of like one hit wonder. Um, a bit like the, the Let Girl had the Friday song, you remember? She like just went yeah, yeah. viral. And, 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 and after that, is, is you feel like um, everything's a test of you after that. You're kind of defined by that one thing that everyone knows as opposed to being you know, broadly known as a talented artist, right? Yeah, and, and I think that, like you said, the, uh, the concept of the micro-influencer is becoming a lot more um, understood. I, I, I realised mm. I was a micro-influencer before the term was even about, but mm. there's certain opportunities that I get, like I just did something for Santander, and it's not because I'm the biggest, most followed um, um, person on, online, but it's because my brand speaks to a certain level of quality, a certain mm. level of... Of authenticity and a certain level of value that they know they're only going to get that from me because I mean Santander it, Santander is a bank they can make as much money as they want they don't necessarily need people on YouTube to be promoting them but they need a certain level of credibility associated with their brand that connects with a different audience so I, I feel like like you said the idea of micro influencers definitely becoming more um, more more um, what's mainstream or more or, or more understood and I think this is really interesting insight for people because I think for a lot of people, the word micro-influencer is almost like you're a smaller influencer than everyone else, as if it's an insult. But I just invested in a business called Peas and Pod, and they basically do home education kits for uh, two to seven-year-olds. I, sh I should get you a box there for your son. Oh, yeah, amazing. But, um, but one of the things that they discovered was when working with influencers, those that had a big following, their traction was much lower than those that had a small following. So... So because the small following is, first of all, the algorithm allows them to reach easier. If you've got mm. a big following, the algorithm doesn't, if they're not awake, when the content reaches the, you know, the, 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 the people, it doesn't go, it doesn't go to everybody. Mm. It's a cascading effect, right? Like TikTok's the same. Your video goes to 100 people, and if, it, if, it, if it's liked, then it goes to 250 people. If it's liked by those people, it goes to 1,000 people and so on. Whereas if you've got a lot of people, but not a lot of them are very engaged, the algorithm doesn't push them up the ladder. So in other words, this... Peas and pod business, they got a lot more traction from the, the smaller influencers because their yep. fan base is much tighter. And I think it is misunderstood by people by trying to build a channel and for those that are looking to engage with people with channels. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it, I, I experienced that myself. When I first started on YouTube, you'd have this small knit community and you could you could see the people commenting consistently, you know what I mean? And you know who was commenting, who was coming back. And what they were, they, what they were expected. What are you, when is your next show? When are you doing this? But the bigger it got, the less it was like familiar, and it was just so many. What's it called? Like you said, people saying, "I don't agree with this." Why are you saying this? It just became like a, a, an abstract piece in in the ecosystem, as opposed to like a a, 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 a community driven like a representation of art. You know? Yeah, totally. Well, I'm getting a lot of questions come in. People are asking, you know, how do you start a podcast show? Who was your favorite guest? Anything that jumps out? Um, well, um, so I think starting a podcast, I think you just got to start. I'm still learning, you know what I mean? Get work with what you can, what you have, and just um, just start. Um, how we met Mark Tilbury, I think um, he's an entrepreneur and he's on TikTok and he works with his son. I think of recent, that's probably been one of my favorite interviews. I really like his kind of like just very like humble approach towards entrepreneurship and really just like, 
he he's very he's invested in what he's passionate about you know about model radio mod, radio controlled models and he just mastered yeah. every spectrum of that and he made that into a business he didn't overcomplicate things he just he just became an expert at flying them selling them and and re refining them and that and that's how we built his business so i think i love stories like that when you're very specialized in something that you know that you're you're passionate about it's it's funny how you know I, I, we both interviewed him in the same week, and uh, he'd never been on a podcast on your show and my show, and that, that that's when I realised we were part of the same community as well. But I completely agree with you. I, I also really enjoyed uh, interviewing Mark, and I and I think what I also liked is he he kind of breaks a stereotype that TikTok's gone and got itself into, which is you know it's for for young kids. Every time I say I've, I I'm on TikTok, people are like, why are you, you know why are you are you dancing to twelve year olds about business? You know why? And I love the fact that he's you know, in his 60s and he's kind of and he's popular with over three million followers plus, right? I mean, it's just just mind blowing, isn't it? It's mind blowing and and break stereotypes like that. Hundred percent, yeah. Mark is a legend, man. I really respect him. So, any big lessons as an entrepreneur yourself? Any any kind of like I'm going to bring our next guest on. But just anything you want to throw at the audience before we bring our next guest on? Um, it's more the generic stuff like persistence, man. It's like for me, failure and all that stuff, it just is all part of the process. One of the things that I'm seeing people being successful now who started 10 years ago, and that's just because of persistence, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I talk about this a lot, and my podcast is all about luck, right? And I feel like luck's such an important ingredient, but I think there's two types of luck. The random luck, which actually happens less than you think, like where you're born, for example, or coronavirus, is it, no one can control these things. But how you react to coronavirus is your own luck. So mm -hmm. a big part of it is like, there's three parts. There's the amount of risk you take, embracing fear. There's knowing destination and absolutely persistence. That's the third element. And so many people oh. are not persistent. They want it overnight, right? No, not at all, man. It's crazy, yeah. Well, look, um, I'll just bring our next guest on. Uh, Andrea, I'm probably saying your name wrong because I'm slightly dyslexic. So they bring you on, you can say your own name from Pomer Brush. He's a founder and uh, he's here to tell us his story and we're here to help him. Hey, man, how you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm so excited the sound works. I was expecting to, uh, you know, have um, have some problem with the sound. Normally, it's like, hello, are you there? Hello, are you there? So it's great that it worked. So tell us, tell us what you're about. Tell the audience what you're doing and, and your story. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm the founder of Poma Brush. Uh, well, essentially, a, um, an electric toothbrush. So we've created an electric toothbrush over the last uh, year and a half, I think. Um, and just uh, while well, building the brand, building the brand uh, uh, in the in the oral care segment, and ultimately aiming to build. Uh, a new uh, personal care brand and challenge the challenge the big FMCG players that have been there around for for a couple of decades and um, and yeah just trying to build to bring something new to the market. Um, that's uh, that's about that's about Poma Brush. So how did it how did it come about? How how did you uh, you know what were you doing before and, and what made you jump jump off the cliff yeah. and build a plane on the way down this? Uh, yeah, uh, that's an interesting story. I've been, um, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur. I've got another business and um, I also have a corporate background. So I bring uh, some of the big, uh, big experience uh, working for large uh, global organizations. And, and uh, that's kind of a combined experience, which is interesting. And um, the, the, the previous business I was running was uh, really travel heavy. And I've been traveling like 50, 60 times per year. And um, at some point, 
the, the pomo brush idea just came around uh, at one of the business trips and i was uh, packing my toiletry bag and i was like like my electric toothbrush was so big and i've been I, i've been using electric toothbrushes for for like 10 or 15 years and i was like i have to carry this huge electric toothbrush every time i pack and like um i have to carry the charger with me every time I, I i take my electric toothbrush which is huge as well and and i and i also have to to carry with me the ac adapter because when i travel cross-continental i have to have like lots of chargers with me and um and that wasn't like more on a practical side on the personal side i've been uh every time i've been using uh specifically new uh brush heads every time i would start brushing my teeth um uh, my gums would start bleeding from time to time, uh, primarily because nylon bristles are so uh, hard. And the, the, like Philips, Oral-B and other brands, they just make super powerful motors, like ultrasonic is what they are trying to, 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 to follow. And it's just, it's, it's an unpleasant experience. And uh, I was looking at my AirPods and I was like, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. That, that would be a good idea to create a toothbrush that, that actually would need to be charged. And, and for people who travel a lot like me, that would be good to have a travel case which would charge your toothbrush every time you fit it inside. And I was like, okay, uh, let's do it. And, I, and, and we've built it. So that, 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 that was a long story short. A lot of people have an idea, especially product ideas, and, and they don't know where to start. So was, was it literally that easy? Was it like I had an idea and I got it made? Or what was your first that was step? That was not easy at all. That was not easy at all because that was a question actually before that uh, that Daryl uh, was uh, answering about what 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 is needed uh, what what quality an entrepreneur needs and I think determination is one of the qualities that I I really like because the the worst thing is that uh, I had an idea but I couldn't put it on a paper because I cannot draw I'm not a designer uh, what I can what I know really well is how to hire people because I've been I've been in executive search. Uh, for almost a decade and I've been hiring lots of people for other companies so I've, I've hired a guy for my company and explained him and, and actually worked with him hand in hand to build a product that I that that actually resonates 100% to what I want to what I want to offer to people and what I what I believe so what you see is actually the the kind of my thoughts that I unfortunately cannot put on the paper because of absence of like drawing skills or design skills but there was a determination that I just wanted to, to bring um, to bring to reality, and and this is how it was born. Well, um, part of what we're trying to do here, myself and the community listening, is is try to help entrepreneurs. As you know, that's our mission. So, um, you know, tell us uh, what do you need help with? What's uh, you know the old line? What's keeping you up at night? What, what what are your what are your concerns or questions at the moment? Yeah, so we are building uh, we are building a uh, a global brand. So the, and we are currently facing a couple of challenges. So um, that I think would be would be really helpful. And and on one hand is actually uh, scaling it into a decent um, decent e-commerce uh, decent e-commerce brand uh, and stable e-commerce brand that would uh, that would build like a very decent. Uh, supply chain and technically I know how to do that and and th th this is not a rocket science but what I would really be interested in in in, in uh, just knowing some people who have been there and done that already and managed to build like a decent uh, um, 
e-commerce brand that uh, seamlessly operates across different countries. Uh, this is, I think, this is thing number one. And thing number two is actually building up, um, building up a brand that people know. Because whenever we call, uh, we, we we call some brands. They, when you say this, people already understand it, and they have a certain uh, kind of, uh, they have a certain understanding what this brand is about and what is the tone of this brand what is the image of this brand etc so there is a certain visual code that people recognize and this is what we are building right now this is what we are uh, trying to bring to our brand uh, these days even though it is like we are very much focused on design but what we want to do is to make sure that whenever we say poma brush People people understand like aha uh -huh, this is Poma brush it looks like this it sounds like this people tell about Poma brush like this there is a like clear uh, image of this and ultimately I think these are these are main things ultimately as I said we want to build a personal care brand and uh, I like Dyson I think they're doing great things. So what we want to do is we want to do Dyson in a personal care space and we want to launch other products. So anything about R&D uh, into different uh, segments, uh, any people who've done R&D and built multi-product brands, um, that's also very interesting and ex experiencing that would be um, super helpful. Yeah, I can definitely give you some thoughts. Um, Daryl, do you have any thoughts or should I just jump in? I, I want you to feel to contribute if you've got something to say you can just come off mic if you like i don't want you to feel like you have to though um so i'm i'm not i'm not really um e-commerce isn't my speciality but i did work with um, a brand called cano and in, in, in early days and cano what they were trying to do is build a computer they were trying to revolutionize personal computer space they were trying to build a computer that's as easy to build as lego for children mm -hmm. and one one of the biggest things that they did very very early on was the emphasis on community so initially their first i think their first ten thousand kits was all crowdfunded you know what i mean and i think when it comes to building and scaling your community is going to be a big driving force so they so they already started off with this already invested community who were already paying for the brand but i think then what they did afterwards which was which really kind of tipped the scales was they created their own platform called cano world where the people that bought the products were able to further invest into the brand. So I think the idea of having a platform, and obviously it's a different space and it's a different, um, this is tech, you know, and this is different kind of technology, but I really saw how having a platform where the community could conversate and discuss among each other helped solidify their reputation to go on to do partnerships with like Microsoft and all these other companies because of that space where they, they were establishing their brand with specific people. Um, so yeah, maybe that's useful in some capacity, but um, okay. that's not e-commerce is not really my forte. So probably Simon could give some advice. Yeah, I am. I, um, I think one day Darren and I, our two organisations, might have to merge because I just agree with what he just said there, and I've just uh, stretched it out by saying, okay. So I, I worked with Alibaba. On, I had an agency in Hong Kong called Fluid, and um, you know, working with brands like that, what I discovered was just how deep they were in the community. It actually links. It was a big part about, you know, okay, in their case, it was about supporting the manufacturers and allowing them to directly connect with consumers, almost cutting out these middle companies that were making all the margin and let, let customers go direct to Alibaba 
to, to sell and ultimately let customers get a better price and whatever they need from that platform. But community was a huge part of that whole business. And you know, brand value, I think, is what we're talking about. And, and I think you know, a couple of elements. What, what, what Dale just said about crowdfunding, I think, is really valuable. I don't know if you looked at crowdfunding. I know it's a bit tricky, but it's not just about the money you raise. It's the community that come along with you for the journey, especially around, I want to say, sustainability and stuff like that. You know, There's certain pockets of the community that will back a product based on these, these kind of um, hot-button issues for them. We were talking about it earlier, Dale and I. I think micro-influencers can, can define your brand. If you get the right partners on board and they, um, they endorse you, and, and, and often micro-influencers will pick carefully who they endorse I and mean, if you can get them on board that can make you different especially travel bloggers i mean i know right now we're in a covid world so it's all gone to shit but you know generally uh, you know travel travel bloggers micro influencers would be good i like affiliate programs um i hate funnel marketing with a passion i feel like i don't like that you know you get something free we'll get your email and then we'll sell you shit i hate that but i like affiliate product marketing where you say to a micro influencer you know, if you like our product, genuinely like it, and you genuinely think your community would find it useful because they're a community that also travel, then every time you kindly mention our product, put a link in your bio, that will come through to our site, and we'll track it and make sure you get some benefit for that love, right? And and just on the other side, um, you know, I, I think definitely um, when it comes to brand, personal brand is important. Like I think in startups, I, I still think that you know, Mark Zuckerberg hates him or not, he's, he's part of the brand of Facebook. And that geeky side of him, in some respects, has protected him from commercialization mindset that people think Facebook has. You know, so I mm -hmm. think your personal brand, I think the, the brand story, you know, like your story that you mentioned, but making sure that's PR'd a bit more. Um, I think brand is, is totally undervalued as one of the things you've got to focus on when you start a company. A lot of people just have a product and launch it. And I think they forget just how much brand sets price, that brand sets standards. And it's not just AirPods that Apple's selling, right? That, that is an Apple brand that happens to be AirPods, right? So the AirPods, you kind of trust. They're not the best product on the market, actually, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, you know that, that kind of community feeling, I think, is what a lot of e-commerce sites are about. And they're going more and more niche. Again, to what Daryl said, you know, uh, the easy way I would put it is like groups on Facebook, you know, people that have sensitive teeth or people that, um, you know, uh, I, I, and then the final thing I'll, I'll say that I've learned building businesses and brands is I, when I had my first company in Hong Kong called Fluid, we, no one knew us. And I remember ringing up a company and saying, hey, we're Fluid and we'd like to help you. It was Nissan. And they said, who the hell are you, man? You know, like we've never heard of you. So I, it was really hard. And then basically I went to um, um, Time Warner and they have, they own CNN, Cartoon Network, Fortune Magazine. And I said to them, hey, um, I was looking at your media kits and they're all a bit out of date. Why doesn't my agency update them for you? It's kind of like just a gesture of goodwill. And then um, they let it, they said, sure, why not? And we did that project, it was about two days. We knocked it out of the park. And then CNN said to us, we love what you did so much. How about we go pitch to clients together to win advertising, do microsites, do promotions together? And we became super famous as the company that worked with CNN. So we leveraged CNN's brand and, and reputation. We would walk in the room at CNN and we'd leave the room as fluid, my company. So I don't know if you're going to line up. I'm thinking of you like, you know, airlines. Like, I like Cafe Pacific personally. 
you know, I know they're having trouble right now, like all the airlines, but, you know, aligning with the brand and rubbing on, rubbing, getting their brand image to rub off on you, you know, you've got to pick the brand very carefully, of course. Um, you, you probably don't want to go with a certain brands. I was going to slag someone off then, but I probably shouldn't. You want to go with certain brands, you know, that are going to, that are going to um, you know, give, give, have the ethics that you have. But I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity. I also think there isn't a global dental brand that I trust, generally. So, you know, I'm surprised all of you have never opened up a dental surgery. These if you can open up a brand that helps people with their teeth that happens to have products, that could be a good elongation of what you're doing. You create a franchise model like McDonald's that happens to do delivery of toothbrushes. Anyway, that, I'll stop there, otherwise we'll end up um, you know, living on Mars together or something. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. Yeah, thanks. Uh, average crowdfunding, I think, as much as we can. I think we are the most funded electric toothbrush out there. We've raised more than 600,000. Uh, so th this community is there. I, I think overall we have close to 400,000 uh, customers on uh, crowdfunding, mentioning our own direct sales through, through our own website. So on this, uh, on this uh, stage, we are very well represented and, and, and crowdfunding indeed gave us a lot of um, a lot of visibility and um, lots of other uh, media were writing about us, like how to spend on Financial Times, uh, Wired, um, The Australian, so on and so forth. So the crowdfunding indeed gave us a very, very strong community and very loyal community. That So that's uh, absolutely sure. And all of the rest that you mentioned, that's indeed uh, are, are, are good, um, good examples. And like we've been uh, leveraging them from time to time. I wouldn't say that doing that systematically, but uh, when we were uh, pushing the crowdfunding, uh, we were definitely doing um, like bits of everything and, 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 and it indeed proved uh, working really well. So what's the next step? Um, I say normally uh, you've done a great job there, by the way, that, that's amazing. I'm assuming you, you know, you're in close contact with that community. You, you like what Daryl was Absolutely. saying earlier, that community can be your sales team. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm the support manager these days, <laughs> uh, co-founder and support manager. So I know all of the pains of, of, of our customers and all of their wishes. So like, um, and actually we respond to our community pretty quickly. So as I think 10 days after we launched on Kickstarter, uh, some of our customers asked, uh, what about like, we love your black toothbrush. What about doing black uh, toothbrush case, the Poma case, we call it. And we gave them black Poma case, and that's a complete uh, success. So I think it gives around 60% of our uh, sales black case, wow. black toothbrush. Uh, it's, it's, it's insane, and we love it a lot. Uh, it, it, it's a great product. And then people said, we love your minimalistic um, take on design, uh, but we have like lots of things that are standing in our bathrooms uh, on the sink can you do something that you could somehow nicely store your toothbrush so we created poma clip uh which is uh, like a magnet clip for your toothbrush and it's it kind of floats on your on, on your mirror or on your tile and people absolutely love it so th that kind of close contact is really helpful and actually helpful in offering new products to people because it's ain't complicated to give something new to people i think for up for brands like us uh, probably it's complicated for Philips, but for, for brands like us, that can be really quick. It's it's fairly easy. But the, to your question on what's next, uh, so we are uh, we are doing a couple of things these days. So we are on one hand um, 
we are doing the R&D into other products that could, could be complementary to our toothbrush. And that's a pretty big uh, part of my time. The other co-founder who is uh, strong in marketing, he's actually uh, organizing this marketing machine for us. And we are working on creative, the right image and right visual code uh, for our brand. Um, and, and the other, like third co-founder, um, uh, is taking care of actually uh, attracting the, the the seed round, so we are also on, on that side, and uh, that's um, that's that's our daily agenda. Amazing! I think actually Daryl mentioned this earlier as well, and I think the, just for my audience listening, I think this is really useful uh, tip. You know, the community piece, tapping into uh, what customers want. Now, we always launch with what we want, right? And then if we listen to people carefully enough, that's why the comment section is so important and people overlook it because you can actually get creative ideas from your community. All of my personal content that I produce comes from a question that someone on TikTok or, or someone asked me. And I realize they don't know that. And I think, right, I'll create content to help people with that. So you, know, yeah. you, you can both uh, tap into your communities in incredible ways. Um, I'm getting some questions in uh, for, for you. Uh, I wonder if you could just talk quickly. Someone's asking about uh, how you do a Kickstarter campaign. Um, any any tips on that? Someone's looking to do one. Yeah, well, I think Kickstarter campaign is all about like putting together uh, the best you can. So and uh, the best you can to 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 represent your your product and tap into a very like very clear. Uh, benefits that your product offers uh, and actually choosing the right platform and choosing the right um, uh, kind of um, steps towards crowdfunding because you can do on both like you can do Kickstarter you can do Indiegogo but uh, it is also very important to understand what product you're doing and what platform uh, fits you best for the product you, you do so uh, I'd recommend to do some homework and, and research on, uh, on on Kickstarter uh, on crowdfunding platforms and choose the one that you need. And also, of course, uh, marketing is the king here. So, like, you definitely need to to make sure that your marketing is strong enough to to promote your crowdfunding campaign and make sure that it reaches right people. So that's uh, that's that's uh, that's I think the the, the most uh, useful. Um, advices but like the, the the most important advice is to be sure that you know what video you want to make for the crowdfunding page because that's been i think that's been the biggest lesson for me uh and the most complicated thing actually because videos are expensive you want to make the video that people look through from the beginning till the end and uh and that was that was i think the most complicated part as complicated for me as like building up this, the, the whole product mm. And today, um, the product's all been shipped. Is it? Is it, is it now? Um, I, I it's going know. to be shipped in uh, like first week, the first week of December. Christmas gifts, Christmas stocking fillers. Black Friday, uh, Cyber Black Monday. Friday. <laughs> uh, Cyber Monday, yeah. But it's. Uh, I mean, I do with, with crowdfunding. Sometimes I hear people talk about they have to spend six hundred thousand to get six hundred thousand in revenue, but then they don't have the money to make the product. That's not our case. Uh, we've been we could make a million, but that was not the goal for us uh, mm. because we were like we were very strict on the on the economy uh, unit economy and on the general business part of that because making money ain't that complicated. So no, that's been a that's been a successful campaign. 
not six hundred thousand or six hundred thousand. So is the next thing, you know, you, you ship out the toothbrush and you have a little note in there, you didn't buy one for your partner or something and get those 4,000 people to get another 4,000 people to buy a toothbrush? What's the, what's the next, uh, next stage after a successful Kickstarter campaign? I mean, for us, uh, for us, crowdfunding campaign was just a validation because uh, before a crowdfunding campaign, we were doing our own uh, direct-to-consumer sales of uh, pre-orders and seeing how people are actually uh, reacting and we were very clearly saying that this is a pre-order um, and very very early pre-order so and we were seeing that uh, healthy unit economy and and we were understanding we can build an e-commerce business out of it now crowdfunding for us was rather a pr justification of what we do and quite an easy entrance on the global um on the global level now as i said uh, um we are keep selling and uh, we are keep building uh, an e-commerce brand. So uh, essentially after after we ship, uh, our next goal is to A, uh, ensure the uh, proper uh, production cycle uh, and then ensure the, uh, well, the whole supply chain from production to the door, the next door delivery, as simple as that. And, and, and nailing down that, um, industry of oral care uh, segment and then uh, and then building up additional brands into personal care so extending it because oral care okay people globally everywhere brush their teeth but typically answering to your comment on on, on reacting on Facebook uh, comments or any comments of your customers the most complicated comment to argue or to kind of um, reply to is I use the manual toothbrush. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> you do nothing to this comment, and you won't do manual toothbrushes um, just out of the blue. So um, we want to build up like a whole uh, pile of uh, personal care products um, that would be complementary to the toothbrush. Mm. Mm. So that that's the elongation for you, is it? To go down in the personal care route, as opposed to open a load of dentists, like I'm suggesting. <laughs> no, not, not the dentist. Uh, you probably know Swedish brand uh, called Forio. Uh, I think they've been doing pretty well. Uh, they just built like in seven years a billion dollar company, as far as I know, in personal care. They've started from the uh, toothbrushes and then expanded mm -hmm. into like facial sponges, uh, so on and so forth. So very beauty uh, related stuff. And uh, that sector is definitely underserved for now. So there is a space to, to play around. Well, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. I guess, um, you know, is there one wish you'd like to ask my audience? Is anything, want to go buy your product? I'm sure that's given. Can they do that? And any wish in particular for someone listening to help you with something? Is there anything you'd like? Yeah. Um, those who use uh, manual toothbrushes, think about electric. Mm. Yeah, I would add, I, I got an electric and I'm going to chuck it in the bin and buy yours, I promise. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I was using it wrong for a year. So I was brushing my teeth while it was on, thinking that, you know, it's like a double brush, right? I'm brushing and it's swirling. And then I went to the dentist and he said, you're losing top part of your gum because you're brushing while that thing's swirling. And, and no one ever trains you on electric toothbrushes. <laughs> so I was doing the manual toothbrush approach on top of the electric. So, yeah. That would be a good. Uh, that would be a good viral video, by the way. You know, like people have got to learn the difference. <laughs>
No, I, I made the same mistake as well. Yeah, That's actually yeah. very you're useful. Supposed, you're not supposed to move it when you've got an electric toothbrush. So yeah, um, or, or or you just do it like not that active as you would do with a manual toothbrush. Yeah, because ultrasonic that they're super powerful and, and make yeah. hearts. I agree with your earlier statement there. I mean, I, I guess when you spent 30 years brushing your teeth like this, it's very hard to brush your teeth and just hold it. You know, there's just an instinct. <laughs> yeah. you take a hold in a minute. There's something not yeah, yeah, something, you know? So, um, yeah. so yeah, anyway, that, that, that might be a good marketing video that uh, maybe Daryl could help you with. Yeah. Oh. Good, um, Daryl. Any any comments from you before we before we uh, end the podcast? Any, any, anything you want to add? No, it's been part of the conversation to meet both of you, man. I learned a lot from both of you. You know, it's pleasures all time. Likewise, I'm I'm a big fan of yours, uh, Daryl. I love I love your content. And uh, and anyone that wants yeah. to uh, listen to your podcast show, I'll put the links in the bottom of the broadcast after this. And uh, of course, um, if there's any way. You guys, uh, you know, listening, want to reach out? You can just reach out to the links below. I'll put the links to Puma Brush down below too. So, you, can people buy it for Christmas, or do they have to wait until the new year now? I'd say the new year. All right. The the marketing guy in me is like, no, Christmas should be buying it for Christmas. I'm the sports manager, so I know better. <laughs> fair, fair. No, that's good. Anyway, don't overpromise and underdeliver. So that's all right. People let people eat for Christmas and then buy a good toothbrush in the new year, right? Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you both for coming on and thanks for sharing your thanks. stories and insights with the audience. And uh, yeah, I look forward to chatting to both of you again another time. No Likewise. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks, Daryl. So there we go, folks. That's our podcast for today. I hope you found it useful. If you did find any of the insights useful for my two guests today, do me a big favor. Hit the links below. Go listen to Seven Figure Podcast. It's really fascinating. Please go listen. To, uh, maybe go listen to the video that was made for Kickstarter for Pomerbush. I'm sure you learned something about how to make a good video. They raised over 600,000 US dollars from 4,000 people on Kickstarter. So some learnings there just by going and watching his video. Equally, um, if you have any questions about business, you want to know how to start a company, how to grow a company, we are doing free webinars every month. We're doing podcasts every week. We're available through our different community channels. You can ask us a question. We always reply to comments, even if it takes me two days to reply to them all nonstop. My three-year-old gets annoyed that I'm not giving him love. I still reply to your comments personally. So if you guys need anything to start a business or learn about entrepreneurship, we want to know what we can do to help you. Drop us a comment down below. Equally, do me a favor, hit the share button on whichever channel you're listening to this broadcast on and let the algorithm know that we're providing good content. And uh, we don't want people that are only charging you for content to uh, be able to reach the wider audience. Please hit it, even though we're free, we think we have value. So please prove we have value by hitting the share button and letting the world know. There's useful content out here for free to help you be an entrepreneur, and we want nothing in return. I'll see you soon, guys. Have a good evening.